0: Hey, this is Brent Ingersoll from King's Church. Thanks so much for tuning in to our podcast. I pray that this message you're about to hear empowers you, encourages you, challenges you, and equips you to live the life that Jesus has for you. Thanks for tuning in. I recently had the opportunity to go to Israel, the Holy Land, and to explore the land where all of the stories in the Bible unfolded. Now, when I had this opportunity to go, I had to check it out, not because I didn't believe the Bible or don't believe the Bible. I chose a long time ago to believe the scripture as true. I chose by faith. And then since then have come to believe that the Bible is the most reliable ancient book. However, when the opportunity presented itself for me to go and actually be in the places where this all went down, I couldn't pass it up. It was incredible to actually walk through the land and to explore the the historicity of what I've believed all my life. Now, this might sound weird for you to hear a pastor say, but, but my faith was deepened. Like, I believe the Bible even more now, having seen and stepped foot in these places that I have for my whole life read about. You could say that my faith is a little more rooted now, and I have an even deeper conviction that this stuff really happened. Now, because those of us who live in the 21st century West live so far removed from the place and time that these stories in the Bible unfold, a lot of us can have this mystical feeling when we think about these stories. It's not that we would call them fiction, and we certainly would, would think of them as historical. However, if you're like me, there's this fantastical component that we attach to these stories because they're so far removed from our day-to-day experience. Maybe it's the doubt inside of us. Maybe it's the, you know, the cultural narratives that we hear that criticize the Bible. But whatever it is, all of us as believers fight through a certain level of doubt and maybe mysticism when we think about these biblical stories stories. stories. For instance, a lot of us, when we think about our own history, we think about like recent history as Canadians or here in North America, we probably, if you're like me, can more easily picture things like confederation and things like 9-11. Do you remember where you were, those of you who are old enough? There's there's a more visceral, real sense of our recent history, and that's because we live here and this has been our story. But when it comes to the Bible, because those of us here in the you know 21st century West are so far removed from that time and place, we often have a hard time taking it seriously. For instance, I was at basketball a couple weeks ago and a, a buddy of mine asked where I'd been and I told him, oh, I just got back from Israel. And he goes, what were you doing in Israel? Now he knows I'm a pastor, but he never made the connection of why I would want to go there to check out where the Bible is. And so I said to him, I wanted to go where the Bible happened. And he said, oh. And then like gentle, but trying to like get to the bottom of it without offending me, almost delicately, like you would talk to like a dementia patient. He kind of leaned in and he goes, you actually think those things happen? Like they're historical? I go, yeah, I walked in those places. I saw those things. These are historical accounts that we're talking about. They aren't just some fantastic story. And so for me, when I went to Israel, it was incredible to see these places to take my Mind from, you know, fable and fiction into history. It's so easy for us to put the Bible stories into this category, the same category that we would put Lord of the Rings and Middle Earth, or think about the stories of scripture the same way we think about, you know, stories that happened a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. The reality is when we talk about the Bible, we're talking about historical facts. For the people in Israel, these stories that we read about in the Bible, that's not ancient history that happened some other place, some other time. That's their story that happened over there, you know? It's like connected to them in a visceral, tactile, tangible way. For them, these stories, they're history. So as I explored the land of Israel, My faith got deepened in the actual historicity of what we believe in our faith as Christians and people who believe in Jesus. I saw the Judean wilderness where the Israelites would have wandered for 40 years under the guidance of Moses. I saw the muddy waters of the Jordan River where Joshua would have led the people of Israel to the long awaited promised land. I walked around the ruins of Jericho and climbed to the top of Mount Carmel where Elijah called down fire and God won the hearts back of the whole nation in this great revival. I stood in the valley of Elah and saw where David fought Goliath and the hillsides that the Israelites and the Philistines camped on and even the brook where David would have picked up five smooth stones. I saw the hills where the shepherds were the night that the angels came and announced that the Messiah has been born today in Bethlehem. I explored Nazareth, the village where Jesus grew up. We walked through the ancient ruins of Capernaum where Jesus launched his ministry and performed countless miracles. I stood on the shores of the Sea of Galilee and even took a boat ride out onto the waters, the very water that Jesus would have walked on and the same water that Peter would have fished in his whole life. I walked through the Garden of Gethsemane and looked at the olive trees in the area that Jesus and the disciples were the night that Jesus was betrayed. I saw the very rock that Jesus would have laid out on and cried out to God the night that he was arrested and turned over to be crucified. I walked the streets of Jerusalem where Jesus would have walked and paraded in on the back of a donkey and even walked carrying his cross to the great moment where he died for our sins. We visited the garden tomb and we even saw the steps that the very first Christians would have gathered together and listened to Peter proclaim the good news of the kingdom of Jesus, our resurrected Savior, the day that 3,000 people came to believe that Jesus is Lord. So near the end of the week, something was troubling me. I was simultaneously exploring all these places of biblical historicity and putting a place to the stories I grew up believing. However, in the back of my mind, I still had that question that you see so often this time of year. You'll see it on Time Magazine or in National Geographic or on Discovery Channel or in documentaries or YouTube videos. The question of did Jesus actually exist or is he just some story, some fable, some inspirational tale we tell each other to help, you know, get through life? That's a common critique you hear, especially this time of year, that Jesus didn't actually exist. There's no historical evidence for the person of Jesus of Nazareth. So what I did was I had this chance to corner my tour guide. The whole time we were in Israel, we had this guide. her name was Gabrielle, and she's Jewish, and she showed us everything. We saw so much of the land, and so I had this window where she was standing by herself, and I thought, now's my chance. And so I went over to her, and I just kind of walked up, and I said, I have a question for you. Now, I know you're not a Christian, you don't follow Jesus, and you have your reasons for that. I'd love to hear that, but here's my question for you. Do you believe that Jesus of Nazareth actually existed? And before you answer, let me tell you why I'm asking. Because where I come from, it's a common thing to question as to whether or not Jesus of Nazareth actually even existed. So I said, Gabrielle, do you believe that Jesus of Nazareth existed? And She looked at me almost condescendingly, borderline, and she said, that's a stupid question. And I thought, uh-oh, here we go. She said, I don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth existed. I know he existed. He's a historical fact. This is not something in question. It's undeniable, she said, that Jesus of Nazareth is an actual historical figure who lived in Nazareth and then launched a ministry in Capernaum, literally turned the whole region of Israel on its head, had a multitude of followers, and undoubtedly was crucified by the Romans. And she did not include the part at the bequest of the Jews, but I didn't feel like that was a time to split hairs with her. However. I thought it was important because she pushed right back and she thought it was such a stupid thing to even think that Jesus didn't exist. She said, if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth existed, then I would suggest you can't believe in the validity or the historicity of anybody in the first century. Do you believe that Caesar existed or Pontius Pilate or Herod the Great or or maybe even further down the line in more recent history, do you believe that Plato or Socrates existed if you don't believe that jesus of nazareth existed you are denying all the historical evidence after her little rant she leaned in and she said the important question or at least the 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 smart question is not did jesus exist anybody who takes history seriously cannot conclude that jesus didn't exist the important question is not did jesus of nazareth ever exist the important question is did he or did he not rise from the dead. And this is the critical question of Easter. This is the story we celebrate. This is the claim that we're making. We remind ourselves at Easter that our faith is not just built on a who in Jesus, but more specifically, a claim about what he did. Our faith is built on the fact that we believe that Jesus of Nazareth lived and he died and that Unexpectedly, he rose again. Resurrection is the claim and it has been proclaimed by thousands to hundreds of thousands to millions to now billions of people around the world who believe he is risen. It began with eyewitness accounts. All of the gospels record their own version of the resurrection story. John, one of the 12 disciples, and the disciple whom Jesus loved, perhaps the disciple that was closest to Jesus, records in his eyewitness account in his gospel, in John chapter 20, that the events of the resurrection unfolded just like this. Then, Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying, As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands inside. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail markings in his hands, and I put my finger where the nails were, and I put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. John the apostle. Yeah. John the apostle recorded all of these things about Jesus, these wild claims and events for a purpose. So that you would hear them and you would explore the evidence presented to you and like Thomas, you would conclude that Jesus is Lord and that he's risen from the dead. And that by believing that very claim, you would have life in his name. That's the invitation of the gospel of John. That's the invitation of the gospel, the good news about Jesus. That you would explore this claim and conclude that it's true. Jesus is the Messiah, the one sent by God to save mankind from their sins and restore all things. And that as you believe that to be true, you experience Life that only He can give you. That's a claim worth exploring. I mean, you might be here today and, and you're already converted, you're a believer, I'm preaching to the choir. My hope today is that as we talk about the resurrection of Jesus, your faith gets deepened and the life of Christ flows at a deeper level into your life and your experience. But for those of you that maybe you just got drugged out here by a friend or a family member and you're counting the moments until you get out of here and go get a Big Mac or one of those chicken Big Macs, Have you tried that yet? My hope is that I would press upon you. Like a claim like the one that Christians make at very least warrants some inquiry. And that a claim like God sent his son to save you and to save the world and that he died on a Roman's cross and rose again, a claim like that should not just be dismissed as, oh yeah, I'll get to it after I finish binge watching whatever show I'm watching. It should press upon you some exploration. And I want to explore for a moment reasons why, like the logic behind why Christians believe the wild claims. What are the claims? Just so we have clarity. Here it is. We believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, the one promised in the Old Testament to come and deliver Israel and subsequently all of humanity through him. We believe that he really lived and that he really died on a Roman cross Uh, under the okay of Pontius Pilate at the request of the Pharisees and the religious rulers of the day, that he really died, his death was confirmed, that they took him off the cross, they wrapped him in cloths, and they buried him in a tomb, a tomb that we know about, the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. And that on the third day, Christians claim that Jesus was not found, his body was not found in the tomb, but on the contrary, they saw him in person, they saw him raised to life again in body. He wasn't a spirit, he wasn't a ghost, he wasn't just a good feeling, but in very real, human, tactile form, there he was. And the Christians claim that his resurrected body was seen by hundreds of people at the time and the message began to spread that he's risen and they saw him ascend to heaven where he is seated at the right hand of the Father and that one day, here's the claim that Christians believe, he will come again. And so, this is the claim, but I want to just present for you. Just take a couple minutes. I won't be as long as I normally am today. Someone's like, You already preached for 15 minutes on the video, bro. I'm like, yeah, okay. Give me 15 more minutes, can I? I want to give you just some reasons, some logic behind why we believe such a wild claim. And I want to press upon some of you who might just outright dismiss. The the case for Christ and the reasons we have faith in his resurrection is something silly or childish or fantastical. Why would you believe in something? I want something like that. I want to press upon you for a minute. One, that the claim about Christ has satisfied some of the most brilliant minds in human history and that there is a body of evidence that supports the claims of the risen Christ that would actually make some of your doubts look a little crazy. And that it might be possible today that the body of evidence tilts way further in favor of the fact that maybe, just maybe, Jesus actually did rise from the dead. It might tilt further in that direction than you think it is. And I want to just state something. I think one of the best tricks of the devil is to convince you that these claims about Christ are anti-intellectual and stupid and not grounded in any actual facts. And so I want to push you for a moment to consider something. I want to explore really quick, what evidence do we have around the resurrection of Jesus? Did he actually rise, and why can we believe that? Second, if, if he did rise, I want to ask the questions, well, what does that mean? So what? What are the implications of the resurrection of Jesus? We stand here and we celebrate our risen Savior. Why does that matter for you right here in 21st century Nebron Right? Or New Nova Scotia, wherever you're watching from. Why does what happened then there matter here now? And then lastly, what is the invitation as I live this out in my life? So, really quick, can I talk about the evidence for the resurrection for a minute? If I can't, I'm still gonna, but I just wanna be polite. Why do we believe that there is substantial evidence? For the case that Jesus indeed is alive. Now, again, we've already established we don't wanna argue whether he lived or not, like we believe that Jesus is a historical figure. The question we need to answer is did he rise from death? Now, there's some historical evidence we want to look at. One, there is historical evidence in support of the person of Jesus of Nazareth, and a lot of the works that the Gospels report are actually corroborated by outside voices outside of the Christian faith. You have voices like Josephus. He was a first century Jew who was employed, maybe I'll use that word lightly, uh, implored by the Romans to record history. And a lot of the history that you and I Take his fact, came from this guy Josephus. And Josephus himself recorded and reported that Jesus of Nazareth lived and that he was a worker of miracles, quote, and that he was crucified by the Romans and that there was a group of people who believed that he rose again from death. You also have external sources like Pliny the Elder and Tacitus, both first century Greek historians who also confirm the same thing that Josephus said. Hey, we don't totally know everything that's going on here. All we know is there was a guy named Jesus of Nazareth, and he absolutely turned that whole part of the world on its head. He was a worker, worker of miracles, and there is a legion of people who are claiming that he rose from the dead. So you have these external voices beginning to corroborate some of the claims that we are making as Christians. Probably one of the best arguments for the first century claim about Jesus having risen from the dead is in some of his opponents being the Jewish rulers and leaders. Around the time of the resurrection, the Jews were putting out a claim that the disciples had stolen the body of Jesus. You actually see that in some of the Gospels. They reference that, that this was the claim that the disciples stole the body. Well, we can talk about why that doesn't make sense in a second, but you know what that does prove? it proves that Jesus really died and that the tomb is really empty. Because they were saying, well, here's our explanation as to why the tomb is empty. Well, check empty tomb. You have opponents confirming with us that the tomb indeed is empty. So you have these historical corroboratory, corroborating uh, evidences, but we also have the biblical witness. If you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John you have four accounts of eyewitness testimony as to what happened about this man named Jesus. Specifically, all four of them tell the same story, that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, sent to save all of humanity, and that he was crucified on a Roman cross. He really died, he really was buried, and we really couldn't find him in the tomb. All four of them say that. And it's important that you understand something. The Gospels are historical books. They are They're designed and written in that way. Like if you read the Gospels, like particularly Luke, Luke went there as a skeptic investigator, talking to eyewitnesses, trying to pinpoint where and how this all went down. And so they're calling on actual people and actual landmarks and actual witnesses. If you read Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, listen to this language here and see if this doesn't sound like someone trying to build a case that he wants you to test out. Look what he says. He says, For I receive what I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, it was already foretold, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve, and then after that he appeared to more than five hundred of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living. Now, why would he include that? Because in his letter, he's saying, if you don't believe me, ask Bob. Bob was there. And Sally. And Serena. And and Jimmy. And whatever other, like there was 500 of them. Go see for yourself. They'll tell you what they saw. And then he goes on and he says, he appeared to James, the brother of Jesus, more on him in a second. Then to the apostles. And then, of course, I saw him, Paul says. So this testimony is an eyewitness testimony. And you've got to do something with that that you have these people claiming to have seen Jesus as risen. Now, if we were building a case in a court of law, there's not just eyewitness testimony, but one of the things you try to do is you try to look for circumstantial evidence. Am I right? Got any lawyers here? No? Okay, well, you know what I mean. You watched, you watched uh, Law and Order. You know, you know how it works. Suits, right? Circumstantial evidence is stuff that points in favor of the claim. And there is a lot of circumstantial evidence surrounding the Gospels and surrounding these claims, things that aren't the story itself but point to the validity of the story. Does that make sense? Stuff like, for instance, uh, the weird jagged edges in the Gospels. If you read the Gospels, sometimes, let me know if any of you have had this experience. You've read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. and, And there's a detail in there, and you're like, why is that even in here? Stuff like John the disciple he, that Jesus loved, running to the tomb faster than Peter, like just just so you know, I'm a quicker sprinter than Peter. Like, why is that even in there? Here's why, because that's how it happened. When you start to read the Gospels, you start to see very quickly that they're not there with some agenda, some conspiratorial agenda. They're actually just writing down what actually happened. This is why when you read about the risen Christ, it says one of the times he appeared to the disciples, he showed up, he passed through a wall, and he just showed up, boo, and they're all there. And then it says, he was hungry, so he sat down and he ate some broiled fish and honeycomb. Why is that in there? Because it happened. No other reason. There's no other reason to include that other than it happened. And these little jagged edges help build the case that these disciples weren't trying to do anything other than create a case and tell the story as it happened. One of the great criticisms of the faith we have as followers of Jesus is that this is just a story made up by the disciples to try to build a religion to control and brainwash people. Anybody heard something along those lines? The problem with that is the Gospels aren't that that sneaky. They aren't that crafty. And if, if the disciples were men who were trying to concoct this grand story to control people, you would never include details like the broiled fish and honeycomb. Beyond that, though, there are some problematic details that are included that completely blow up that idea that this was some story that these guys made up. Specifically, here's one, how stupid the disciples look. Let me ask you a question. If you were going to create a conspiracy, and it was going to come through you, and you're going to be the champion of said conspiracy, would you make yourself look like an idiot? Probably not. But if you read the Gospels, you see these disciples are as dumbfounded and confused as anybody. In fact, they look really bad. If you read the Gospels multiple times, Jesus said, I'm going to be crucified, and on the third day I'm going to rise again. I'm going to be crucified, and on the third day I'm going to rise again. I'm going to be crucified, and on the third day I'm going to rise again. Are you getting this? But what do we find when Jesus is crucified? all the disciples flee. They're like, I didn't see that coming. <laughs> and then on the third day, when Jesus said multiple times on the third day, you have, count them, zero disciples asking the question, hey, didn't, didn't, didn't Jesus say something about the third day? Should we just go, just in case, go, go check it out? Just 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 in case. You didn't have one of them even suggesting that that's a good idea. All we had was Mary Magdalene going to the tomb because there was some stuff they had to finish because they weren't able to finish preparing his body because it was the Sabbath. So they went back there just to do what they needed to do to prepare his body as they laid him to rest. And that's where they found the empty tomb. But the point I'm trying to make here is these guys did not position themselves as heroes. They were zeros just trying to record what happened. So if you are creating some grand conspiracy, you would never write yourself into being the loser in the story. But beyond that, there's a more critical piece of circumstantial evidence, and that is this. Here's the number one reason. One of the best reasons, one of the smoking gun reasons why you, it's not a good argument to say the disciples created this, but in fact they were just telling the story as it happened, is because the testimony about Jesus came first and foremost through the voice of women. In the first century, this is very far removed and foreign to us, but in the first century, women had no voice, literally no voice. Not only couldn't they vote, they couldn't even testify in court. Like, there was no, they, they were seen as second class citizens, and women did not have the same equal rights as men. And actually, there's a, there's a Greek philosopher named Celsus, and he was one of the early opponents of Christianity. And his number one argument to try to dispel the claims of Christianity was that, well, here's the number one reason we can't believe that Christianity is true, because it came on the testimony of women. And he said, quote, and we all know women are hysterical. His words, not mine. But to which the first century would all have gone, oh, right, right, you can't trust the voice of women, right? My point is this, though. If the disciples were just conjuring up this grand story so that 2,000 years after they're dead, we'd be here participating and rehearsing it, they never would have used women to be the, you know, the bringers of that original message. That's, that's shooting yourself in the foot before it even goes. And yet, here we have these Christians insistent that this is how it happened. That Mary Magdalene found the empty tomb and she came and told Peter and then Peter went and saw it and John outsprinted sprinted him and he saw it too. And then he appeared to the disciples after that. They tell it this way because it happened that way. Probably one of the bigger pieces of evidence in all of it though is just the testimony of the followers of Jesus. What do you do with the early converts? How do you explain that before this moment in history, there was nobody claiming that Jesus is Lord or that he's risen, and then after that moment, like a wildfire, you have dozens, then hundreds, then thousands, then tens of thousands, then millions, and then billions of people who have all claimed Jesus is risen. How do you explain that? What explanation do you come up with when you take into account some of Jesus' earliest followers were his biggest critics before the resurrection? You had Jewish people who it was forbidden to worship a man. You would never do that. And in fact, many of the early Christians were kicked out of their synagogues because they were Jews. They were disowned by their own families because they were worshiping this man Jesus. You have people like James, the brother of Jesus. Let me ask you a question. What would you have to do to make your brother worship you? You ever thought of that? You had James, the brother of Jesus, who was against Jesus before the resurrection, after that saying, my Lord and my God. You had people like Paul the Apostle, the Pharisee of Pharisees, ardently against these Christians and then the risen Jesus comes and shows himself to him and he flips 180 and all of a sudden he is the biggest ambassador for this message that Jesus is risen. What do you do with that? And then what do you do with the first 200 years where Christianity spans through the Roman Empire, where it topples this empire and by 200 year mark you have it being the primary religion on planet earth. How do you explain that? Moreover though, What do you do with the fact that the disciples, if they were just creating some conspiracy, and they cooked this lie up out of their imaginations, and they were maybe that smart to do it, what do you do with the fact that every single one of them suffered and died for this? Do you know what I've found in my life? That lies are only as good as they serve you. And ultimately, how many of you know, lies end up not being good in the end anyway. They always turn out worse than they did, than you thought. But nobody hangs on to a lie once they realize, hey, this is going bad for me. Correct? So what lunatic would cook up something like this only to go and suffer for decades and then ultimately die for what they believe, not recanting? Only somebody who truly believed it dies for it. So my question to you is, what do you do with the evidence? Like the evidence around these claims of Christianity is actually staggering. And I would encourage some of you who are still maybe on the fence to dive in and do some research and just push past some of the intellectual arrogance and laziness of our day. Some of, there's, you know one of the things I tell myself when I have doubts, and specifically when they're born in my mind, is that people a lot smarter than me have decided that Jesus is risen and that he is Lord. When you look at the circumstantial evidence for the resurrection and you consider the eyewitness testimony, the evidence begins to lean dramatically in the the direction that maybe Jesus really is who he says he is and maybe he really is risen. So if he is risen, really quick, what does that mean? So what? What are the implications of the resurrection? Well, first, I would get you to consider this. If Jesus really is risen, first and foremost, it means Jesus is who he says he is. You know, one of the big things you'll find if you read the Gospels and you take it seriously is Jesus had some pretty big claims about himself. He said things like, before Abraham was, I am, which was heresy for the Jews to hear. He was claiming himself to be God. He said something like, if you've, seen the, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We're one and the same. He called himself God. He used the language son of man. He referred to himself as the son of man, which is a messianic title. He called himself God. And one of the things you can't do, C.S. Lewis makes this argument, you can't just dismiss Jesus as a great teacher. Nobody who says the things that Jesus said is a good man. He's either Lord of all or a complete lunatic. There's really no in-between. And that's why some of you who maybe are like, oh, I like Jesus, I like what he had to say. Like, did you actually read what he had to say? He called himself Lord of the universe. You good with that? It's a massive claim, but here's what the resurrection does. The resurrection points in the direction that, oh, he is who he says he is. It's like when Jesus came on the scene and he was trying to tell people, I am the King of kings and Lord of lords. I am the Messiah here to save the world. And people are like, yeah, prove it. And Jesus is like, hold my beer. Not really, you know what I mean? The meme, the meme. (laughs) It's like, here's how I'm gonna prove it I am God. I'm gonna do something that's only God level stuff here. I'm gonna rise again. Second thing, here's an implication it tells us that what Jesus said about the world is true, that he had to come, that he had to die. And that he had to rise again to deal with the great problems of the universe. And that is separation from God, sinfulness, and death. He's come to actually repair what's broken in the world. And Jesus did not come saying everything's just fine. And it tells us, the resurrection, that recreation needed to happen. And that reconciliation to God needed to happen. And that there is nothing we could do to actually expand or actually get past the expanse between us and God. He had to do it on our behalf. And this is another thing that the resurrection tells us. Not only is what he said about the world true, but what he said about us is true. Jesus did not come and say that we are perfect just the way we are. You know, like that... that. Mantra of the day, pretty, pretty, please, don't you ever, ever feel like you're nothing less than perfect to me. Uh, Catchy song, destructive idea. You hear me? Catchy song, destructive idea. Jesus came and said, you are sinners in need of saving. You are lost in need of finding. You are blind in need of sight. You are bound in need of freedom. You are dead in need of life, and I have come to accomplish those things. It also tells us that what Jesus said about God is true. Jesus told us parables, like the parable of the running, hugging, kissing father when his prodigal son just did everything to not deserve the love of the Father. Jesus said the Father is like a, like, a, like a father, God is like a father who saw his son while he was still far off and ran out to him and scooped him up and said, my boy is home. The resurrection tells us that what Jesus said about God is true. And then ultimately, and this is the, the point that we live by, the resurrection of Jesus is proof that Jesus can do what he says he can do. Not only did Jesus make big claims about himself, but he made big claims for us. Claims like, I can provide you peace. I can forgive your sins and make you right with God. I can give you satisfaction in your heart that nothing in this world can give. He said things like, I can open your blind eyes and illuminate the world and show you things that you never even understood. He said things like, I am truth, and I am a path, and I am the purpose for your life. He said things like, I will give you rest and joy. He said stuff like, even if you die, if you believe in me, you will live forever. Why can we believe that what he said is true? Because I tend to believe the one who predicted his own death and resurrection and then went and did it. The resurrection is where we anchor our hope that I am taking his words to the bank. And that's what we remind ourselves of today on this Easter. He said we're forgiven. Why do I believe we're forgiven? Because he rose. Why do I believe that my debt's been paid? Because he rose. Why do I believe That in him I will find life and have it to the full? Because he rose. Why do I believe that in my weary soul when I come to him I'll find rest? Well, because he rose. The resurrection is the smoking gun. It is the proof that I need to take Jesus at his word. And so for you, brothers and sisters, if you're a believer here today and you're struggling with your doubts and maybe having a hard time believing that Jesus is good for his word, You don't rest your case on how you feel or even your circumstances. You rest the case on the empty tomb. It is that on which we anchor everything. There's that old song, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. It gives us this great hope moving forward. Let me talk about the invitation. I'm gonna gonna close. If Jesus really rose then it means what he says is really true. And it means that we are actually invited to live under the reality of his resurrection life and his new kingdom. But here's the invitation. Ultimately, we are invited, like Thomas, don't you love how John ends his gospel with this story of a guy who was doubting? Doubting so much that he didn't even believe the claims of his own brothers saying, no, Tom, we saw him. I call him Tom. Tom. Thomas, we saw him. And he's like, unless I put my fingers in the hole in his hand, I'm not gonna believe. And some of y'all, some of us are a little Thomasy, aren't we? Just Rrr. but Jesus in his kindness shows up and presents the evidence to Thomas. And look what it says. Verse 29 of John chapter 20. Then Jesus told him. Thomas proclaims, my Lord and my God, and then says, Jesus told him, you have seen me, you have believed, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which aren't recorded in this book. Here it is. But these are written that you may be, that you may believe. This testimony is here that you may believe. That Jesus is the Messiah. There is no other. There's not another Messiah coming. He is the singular hope for the world. And that by believing in Jesus, you may have life in his name. Let me say it again for the people on the back. That by believing in him, you may have life in his name. The invitation Is believing in him that would give you life in his name. Abundant life now, a life knowing that you're loved by God. Do you know how unbelievable it is to know you're loved by God? To know you've been made right with God? To know you have a purpose in this world? To know that you matter? To know that you're accepted? How bad do people want acceptance in this world right now? It's incredible to know you've been accepted by the Almighty. How silly does people's affirmation sound when you know that God who made you says, I love you and I want you, when he says, mine over you. And it gives us a life, this resurrection, gives us a life that is free from fear, free from the fear of death. See, we're anchoring our hope that just like Jesus was risen, it means that there is a new creation unfolding. And those of us who believe in Jesus will, even though Jesus says, even though you die, you will live. That we are promised a resurrection body. We are promised to live forever. And so this resurrection gives us actual hope in this life. Amen? Come on, somebody. The, the resurrection, the risen Christ gives us actual hope right here and right now. You say, well, how? I don't know. I could count a million ways, let me say, for the one who's suffering in their body, dealing with some de- you know, debilitating sickness. The resurrection gives us hope that, you know what? There's coming a day where he will give us a new body. You will never ache again. You will never limp again. There's no more walkers or canes or wheelchairs in heaven. For some of you who are weeping and mourning over things lost, the resurrection gives us hope that Jesus will return and he will wipe away every tear from every eye and you'll look back and say he redeemed everything lost and there was nothing wasted. The resurrection gives us hope. Maybe some of you are here like, I have no money in this life, and I just look around, and I see people out here living their best life, and I'm like, I got nothing. The resurrection gives me hope, and ah, this world is temporary anyway. Don't save up and put your treasure in this world where moth and rust destroy but there is a whole new world bursting through the person of Jesus and there's new creation coming and that one that will never perish and one that we will all have more than enough in. Some of you who are struggling with the government and you've got your tinfoil hat on and you're running YouTube deep. You're just like, ah, this crazy world, and I I don't trust anybody. You know what the resurrection gives me hope for? That Jesus is establishing his kingdom, and not even death itself can take it out of his hand, and forever and ever and ever he will establish his throne, and his government is peace without end. See, the resurrection gives me actual hope in this life, and I hope you know that today, and I hope you have it today. Let me ask you this question. What do you believe? What do you believe about the person of Jesus? And if you say, I don't believe it, is it because the evidence doesn't convince you, or is it just because your heart is stubborn? Here's what I believe. Let me leave you with this. I believe that the Bible is telling the truth. I believe it is the Word of God, and there's nothing in there that's not supposed to be in there. I believe that God made this world and called it good and you aren't here by mistake and you aren't some accident when you didn't evolve from some cosmic goop, but there is a divine designer behind it all and he made it good. I also believe though that sin and human error has brought dysfunction and destruction into this world and we all suffer because of it. But I believe that God loved this world so much that he sent his one and only son to come and be the solution to all the problems that we can't fix for ourselves. I believe that Jesus of Nazareth was a real person, born of the Virgin Mary, conceived of the Holy Spirit. He was born in Bethlehem, just like the Old Testament prophesied. I believe that he grew up in the town called Nazareth, and that at the age of 30, he set out on his ministry. I believe that at the moment that God said, it's time, Jesus went and he started doing unimaginable things. I believe he opened blind eyes. I believe he cleansed lepers. I believe he cast out demons. I believe that Jesus walked on water. I believe that he fed the multitudes with just small little fish and loaves. I believe that he taught things that even to this day baffle the most wise minds ever. I believe that Jesus calmed storms, but most importantly, I believe that he rode into Jerusalem on a mission, a mission to give his life as ransom for many. I believe that Jesus was tortured and flogged and beaten, not for sins of his own, but for my sins and your sins. I believe that he went all the way, and it wasn't nails that held him on the cross. It was unimaginable love, and I believe that he suffered. And he bled out and suffocated under his own weight on a Roman cross, but not before he could muster up a little bit more power where he would cry out with authority once and for all, it is finished. And I believe that Jesus was wrapped up. I believe that he really died. He really died. This wasn't some scam, it wasn't some illusion, he wasn't, he wasn't. What's the what's the, uh, the the magician's name there? Siegfried and Roy. He wasn't coming up with some strange illusion. He literally died. The Romans proved it. I believe that the disciples wrapped him up and they thought it was over. I believe that they put him in Joseph's tomb and they closed the door. And then I believe that they came on Sunday and they found an empty tomb. And that since that day, that tomb has been empty. And there has been tens and thousands and hundreds of thousands and millions and billions of people who all have the same testimony. He lives, and because he lives, I live. Let me pray. pray. So Father, we thank you today, and we just say, we just muster up the faith today, and we say we believe it's true. We believe it's true, and we believe that you are risen from the dead, and it changes everything. We believe our sins are really forgiven, We believe we really are loved by you. We believe that even though there's darkness in this world, the light is overcoming it. The darkness will not overcome it. And we believe, Jesus, you are risen, and you are seated on the throne, and you will come again at just the right time. And so we thank you today that we serve a risen Savior, one who did die our death one who did conquer the enemy we can't defeat, one who did rise again in complete and utter victory. Help us live our lives under the deep conviction that you are the King of kings and Lord of lords and you have changed everything by your power and your grace. We love you and praise you and all God's believers said. Amen. Amen.